For a long time, I used to say in all my elementary books that except in a graceful and minor way, women could not draw or paint. Now, don't get mad at me. These aren't my words. They are, though, from the eminent 19th century art critic, John Ruskin. In 1883, he had this Oxford lecture called, called The Art of England. And he tells of meeting this young woman, Lilius Trotter, who challenged his prejudice about artists. And this is what he says. For a long time, I used to say in all my elementary books that except in a graceful and minor way, women could not draw or paint. I'm beginning to bow myself to the much more delightful conviction that no one else can. So who was this woman that changed John Ruskin's mind? Well, she was born Isabella Lilius Trotter on July 14th, 1853, into the large and wealthy family of Alexander and Isabella Trotter. She grew up in the privileged and very wealthy surroundings of London's West End during the golden age of Victoria. And one summer, Lilius and her mother, they were staying at the Grand Hotel in Venice. And Lilius's mother found out that Mr. Ruskin was staying at this same hotel. So she asks if she can send him some of Lilia's watercolors accompanied by this note. Wouldn't you like your mother to send this note to a famous art critic? Mrs. Alex Trotter has the pleasure of sending Professor Ruskin her daughter's watercolors. Mrs. Trotter is quite prepared to hear that he does not approve of them. She has drawn from childhood and has had very little teaching. But if Mrs. Trotter could have Mr. Ruskin's opinion, it would be most valuable. So 57-year-old Ruskin, the artist, the critic, the social philosopher, he begrudgingly obliges to see a few of these. And when he viewed a few of her watercolors and sketches, he was caught off guard by their beauty and maturity. So he took the 23-year-old Lilius under his wing, and he taught her everything he knew about painting. And one of the most important things he said was that all technique must be acquired hand-in-hand with what he called, quote, learning to look. Meaning, as an artist, it's not just your technique of painting. You have to be able to see the thing in a particular way. And one of the things he admired about Lilius was her ability to see. And oftentimes, she would be looking at nature and even become teary-eyed. She would see something that not everyone would see. He said of Lilius, She seemed to learn everything the instant she was shown it, and ever so much more than she was taught. Now, all the while that Ruskin was teaching her, 
She was also growing in her spiritual pursuits. She was volunteering at the YWCA in London, and later at night she would walk around to the Victoria train station and actually find women who were in prostitution, befriend them, invite them to the YWCA, pay their um, fare for the evening, and then also go on to teach them employable skills um, so that they could have other work. And see, Ruskin, he was concerned about this because her ministry was starting to take more and more time away from her painting. And he said that it was affecting the character of her art and not in a good way. She was spending more time volunteering, less time painting. Ruskin believed, quote, she would be the greatest living painter and she would do things that would be immortal. And with his talent as a teacher and his power as a cultural leader, he could launch her career single-handedly. But the offer came with a caveat, as they almost always do. To become immortal, she would have to, quote, give herself up to art. And this became a, a really distressing moment for Lilius. Should she quit volunteering and give herself solely to art? I mean, she was sort of guaranteed success if she did so. And she didn't have to do anything crazy. I mean, she didn't have to, like, sleep with him or anything like that. Just actually commit yourself fully to painting. That's not that crazy thing to ask. But she was distressed, and she eventually wrote, quote, I see clear as daylight now. I cannot give myself to painting in the way he means and continue to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Many of her friends and family men members, they were shocked and saddened by this. She, however, felt deep assurance in her decision. She continued, actually, in her art and her friendship with John Ruskin, but now she felt a deep freedom. She called it, quote, the liberty of those who have nothing to lose because they have nothing to keep. We can do without anything while we have God. So she returned to London and she started volunteering, this time full time at the YWCA. And eventually she heard at a conference someone speak about North Africa and about missionary work in North Africa. And so as a 35-year-old as a single woman, she gets two of her friends, also both single women, and they move to Algiers. And they set up residency in uh, the Arab portion of the Kasbah. And she stays there until 1928 when she dies. And today, if you visit the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, you'll see a whole print room dedicated to John Ruskin's prodigies, except Lilius Trotter. They have her artwork, but it's stored away in the long cabinet of the Ruskin art collection. You can see it, but you'll have to know that you want to see it, and you'll have to go there and ask. It's not getting any wall space. They're stored in a cabinet. Let's turn 
to our text in Mark 9 today. Verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I didn't grow up in the church, and I remember the first time reading these verses, probably late in high school, and wondering what in the world transfigured meant. It wasn't a word in common vocabulary, at least not in my high school. And it sounded uh, almost violent, like disfigured or mutated. It was a, a strange word to me, and it jolted out a bit. Well, if to disfigure is to mar and deface and blemish and scar, and in general to spoil the appearance of attractiveness in something or someone, then it is actually connected to the word transfigure by being sort of its antonym, its opposite. If someone disfigures or vandalizes a a painting or a sculpture, it means the artwork is not only less recognizable, but it's less beautiful. It's less of what it inherently was. It's void of the sense of weight and power it contained. It's less than what it was intended to be. I mean, think of someone's body that's been disfigured in an accident. Maybe their face is scarred beyond recognition, or a limb is lost or unusable. Their beauty in the traditional sense has been marred. And to disfigure is to spoil the attractiveness of something. And to transfigure is the opposite, is to transform into something more beautiful and elevated. The beauty inherent in something is put on full display. It's as visible as it possibly can be. And that's transfiguration. The short story writer who did her graduate degree here at the Iowa Writers Workshop, Flannery O'Connor, she had uh, peacocks on her mother's farm in Georgia. A bunch of peacocks, and of course, all people would go and visit them. There'd be first graders on uh, little trips to go and visit them. There'd be older folks who'd go and visit them. And uh, they'd want to see, of course, the peacock's tails shown in full display and glory. But the thing is, you can't force a peacock to spread its tail feathers. So this is what she says about it. She says, quote, The peacock opens his tail by shaking himself violently until it's gradually lifted in an arch around him. Then, before anyone had a chance to see it, he swings around so that his back faces the spectator. And when the peacock has presented his back, the spectator will usually begin to walk around him to try and get a front view. But the peacock will continue to turn around, so no front view is possible. The thing to do then is to stand still and wait until it pleases him to turn. When it suits him, the peacock will face you. 
Then you will see in a green bronze arch around him a galaxy of gazing haloed suns. This is the moment when most people are silent, she said. This is the final week of our Epiphany Tide series, Luminous. We've seen Jesus reveal sort of bits and pieces of his divinity, of his full beauty to his disciples. And usually in not so subtle ways, right? He's casting out demons, he's healing the sick. But today is when he, like Flannery's peacock, turns to face the disciples and they see his iridescent beauty and bright glory in fullness, like a galaxy of gazing haloed suns. And Jesus is the blinding light that lets us truly see. And today that which is hidden is revealed. Verse 3, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. So to get a better sense of the scale and magnitude of this moment, we have to try and put ourselves in Peter, James, and John's shoes they themselves being a part of Israel's story. Excuse me. So they knew that Moses and Elijah were these extremely important figures in the history of Israel. In fact, each one kind of became representative of these particular things. So Moses became the representative of the entire law, the Torah and the law of the Jewish community. Elijah became representative of all the prophets. Both also had these pivotal, powerful experiences with the presence of God on mountaintops. Right? Let, me, let me read a couple of these experiences. In Exodus, there's almost 10 chapters about Moses' experience with God on a mountaintop. And towards the end of it, in chapter 34, these are verses 28 through 35. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Moses up on this mountain, on Mount Sinai, his face 
is radiant from being in God's presence. His face is like a mirror, right? It's reflecting back the presence of God to the people. And it becomes such a distraction. The Israelites are so terrified of Moses that he starts to put a veil over it. And this thin piece of fabric could dim the reflected glory of God. Right? Just a veil would cover that radiance. However, right, contrast this with the transfiguration. Jesus isn't simply reflecting back the presence of God here. Jesus is emanating it from himself. He is the presence of God. And so the glory goes through his clothes. His clothes become uh, radiant themselves. Fabric cannot cover it. Become brighter than if anyone could bleach them. One of Elijah's mountaintop experiences with God's presence is found in this uh, pretty famous verse, in verses in, in 1 Kings 19. These are verses 8 through 13. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled, again, 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah is the prophet of prophets. He's able to hear and discern the voice of God in a gentle whisper. And as we read in our Old Testament lesson this morning, Elijah was swept up into heaven in chariots of fire, never dying. And so the other prophets of the Old Testament scriptures, especially Malachi, they made it clear that Elijah had to come again before the Messiah could come. And so every good Jew in Jesus' day would have been waiting for Elijah to come and prepare the way for the Messiah who would usher in the kingdom of God. In fact, Orthodox Jews to this day at the Passover meal, they'll open the front door and stand and face it just in case Elijah shows up. So Jesus is up on the mountain chatting 
with Moses and Elijah. Which communicates at the very least that Moses and Elijah, the preeminent voices in Israel's story, they know who Jesus is and approve of fellowship with him. They like chatting with the guy. The law and the prophets find their fulfillment, their fullness in Jesus of Nazareth, and he radiates the glory of God. What this means is that for Peter, James, and John, this man can no longer simply be a moral teacher or some miracle worker or exorcist. This is the son of God. I'm sure you know people who admire Jesus as an ethical teacher, but not the son of God. Maybe that's you. you know, this claim, the, the son of God, the deity and divinity of Jesus is absurd. So you're not wrong to think that. We prefer Jesus to be someone we can control, right? Someone whose teachings and uh, life even can be sort of cherry picked based on what's convenient or compelling to us. But the transfiguration of the Lord is, in a matter of speaking, God's no to us when we try to whittle Jesus down to size. Jesus is not content to be admired. He must be followed. Verse 4, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Peter is enraptured in the glory of this moment, and he doesn't want to leave. He wants to build tabernacles, little churches that could contain the glory of this moment. And I love verse 6, which in my Bible is in parentheses. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Mark is like, hey, don't judge Peter too harshly for saying something stupid here. He was dumbfounded at the glory of Jesus. He was frightened. I mean, have you ever witnessed something or been a part of something so beautiful and powerful and glorious that you were at a loss for words, but you felt like you had to say something? That was Peter. But his mumbling is ruining a holy moment. Sometimes you just have to be silent with Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, it says, while he was still speaking, a voice in the cloud appears. So in other words, to cut him off, God comes in a cloud. In our, in our text, verse 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And this year, the season of Epiphany began with Christ's baptism in Mark 1, where we read verse 11 in that chapter. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. 
So this season, this is the last Sunday in this season. It's bookended with the affirming voice of God over Jesus. The difference is that in Mark 1, we, we have no, um, there's no reason to believe that anybody other than Jesus heard those words. That was the affirmation of Jesus from God for Jesus before he goes to be tempted in the wilderness. This time, Peter, James, and John hear it as well. God interrupts Peter's mumbling and says, listen to Jesus. When God's glory and beauty is revealed to you like the peacock's tail, silence is an appropriate response. Don't try to explain away the mystery or contain it in nice and neat word boxes. Just let it be. In your prayer life, do you ever find yourself just talking, making requests, or simply trying to fill the space? Or do you listen? And when you're reading scripture, is it just for more information or proof text so you can win that argument with that person? Or are you listening to the voice of God present in the text? If we want to have encounters with the transfigured, glorified, beautiful Christ, we have to become the kind of people who can listen. And you see, after Peter, James, and John see, they really see the radiant, transfigured Christ, verse 8 says, suddenly... When they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And this is what I want us to hear today more than anything else. When we see Jesus in his concentrated glory and beauty, everything else starts to fade. In this clarity of Jesus, we see ourselves more clearly as well. This is because we actually learn to do what that voice in the cloud says, listen to him. We listen to who he says we are. And we hear him say what is ours to do. And everything else fades away. And this is what happened with Lilius Trotter. The desire to be a famous, immortal artist began to fade because she heard the Lord calling her elsewhere. And please hear this. This is not a story of art versus missionary work, as if to say only true Christians become missionaries or something like that. Not at all. But when we see Jesus clearly, our particular vocation becomes clear. We discover what is ours to do. She could as well have been asked by God to be a painter, right? Go and become a full-time artist and do that to the glory of God. But instead, she was asked to go to North Africa and to continue to paint, but alongside her service to young women in the Arab community. And she understood this very well. 
In fact, she wrote the following in a devotional titled Focusing. It's kind of long, but she writes beautifully. So please hear this. It was in a little wood in early morning. The sun was climbing behind a steep cliff in the east, and its light was flooding nearer and nearer and then making pools among the trees. Suddenly, from a dark corner of purple-brown stems and tawny moss, there shone out a great golden star. It was just a dandelion, half-withered, but it was full face to the sun, and it had caught into its heart all the glory it could hold and was shining so radiantly that the dew that lay on it still made a perfect halo around its head. And it seemed to talk standing there, to talk about the possibility of making the very best of these of our lives. She says, for if the sun of righteousness has risen upon our hearts, there is an ocean of grace and love and power lying all around us, an ocean to which all earthly light is but a drop, and it is ready to transfigure us as the sunshine transfigured the dandelion, and on the same condition that we stand full face to God, gathered up, focused lives, intent on one aim, Christ. These are the lives on which God can concentrate blessedness. And she goes on to give an example of focusing. She says, when you're sitting in a room and you stare at a window, right? You have two options. You can focus on the window frame and then whatever is outside the window sort of becomes dim and dark. Or you focus on what's outside the window, and then the frame itself, she says, becomes like a ghost, right? It fades. You have to choose which you will fix your gaze upon and let the other go. And she ends this devotional writing saying this. How do we bring things to a focus in the world of optics? Not by looking at the things to be dropped, but by looking at the one point that is to be brought out. Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look at him, and a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. A strange dimness. Lilius Trotter's sketches and paintings are stored away in filing cabinets. Was she a failure? Some 20 years after she wrote that devotional, it got into the hands of another artistic English woman, this time a singer-songwriter who immigrated to Wisconsin named Helen Lemmel. She read those words in that devotional, and she couldn't get them out of her head. And she said the Holy Spirit gave her lyrics and a melody almost immediately. And this has become one of the most famous hymns of all time, certainly making it impossible to label Lilius Trotter a failure. 
Her devotion to the one thing she was called to gave rise to these words. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the world will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Peter, James, and John saw the radiant face of Christ. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah were gone. All they could see was Jesus. Their preoccupation with good things. I mean, Moses and Elijah are good. They're heroes of the faith. But their preoccupation with the good things was affecting their ability to see the better thing. The glory of God radiating through Jesus. So as we close, my question is, are there things in your life that need to grow dim before the radiant face of Christ. All of us are hungry and thirsty for more, right? Where will we look to have those voids filled? What will we focus on to let the other things dim? The Scottish novelist Bruce Marshall said in 1945, in one of his books, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. And I wonder how many of us are quenching our hunger and thirst for God with lesser things, with counterfeit goods. How many of us are quenching our hunger and thirst for intimacy and relationship with God through Tinder hookups or the fast food of pornography? How many of us are quenching our hunger and thirst for connection and community with God? with some shadow of connection we find wasting time scrolling through our social media apps? How many of us are quenching our hunger and thirst for the beauty and goodness of God by going on a shopping spree, buying material things? How many of us are quenching our hunger and thirst for for the peace of God with the numbing peace of junk food or drugs or too much alcohol or Netflix binges? This Wednesday, we begin the season of Lent. Now, this includes the historic practice of fasting, which is basically intentionally refraining from a good thing so that 
We hunger and thirst for the better thing. So that in, instead of attempting to fill the void ourselves, we leave the ache to be filled by God and God alone. And one of the things that the transfiguration shows us is that it actually isn't by focusing on our sins that helps us to quit sinning. It's by focusing on the glory and beauty of Christ. These sins, they begin to lose their hold. They begin to fade away. We begin to see them as the counterfeit goods that they are. So this Lent, as you decide what to give up, where to allow the void in your life, making space that only God can fill, as you decide what to give up, make sure the purpose of that giving up isn't so you can feel pride and accomplishment when you do well, or shame and guilt when you inevitably mess up, but so that the empty space made from refraining can be filled with more of the wonder and glory of Jesus. Because fasting is actually about feasting on God. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. May it be true for us as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.